name is Kate Tawney and I'm CEO of State Library Victoria. Welcome to the final policy pitch event for the year, the Prime Minister's Summer Reading List for 2020. The policy pitch is a joint initiative of the State Library Victoria and Grattan Institute, where we explore public policy for Australia's future. In pre-pandemic times, we'd be gathered inside the beautifully redeveloped library buildings, but for now, we're grateful for your virtual company. So thank you all for joining us wherever you might be. State Library Victoria acknowledges that this event and our participants are located on the lands of many traditional custodians in Australia, and we pay our respects to Indigenous elders, past, present and emerging, and extend this respect to Indigenous people joining us online tonight. Well, it's been said many times, but 2020 has been an unprecedented year. It's tested us collectively and individually in so many ways and made us re-examine how we live our lives. Huge budget and policy decisions have been made at breakneck speed and previously unimaginable sums of money have been spent to keep the country safe and afloat during the global pandemic. Work has been upended, transformed and in some cases subsidised and sadly for many lost. The university sector has reeled with the absence of international students and budget cuts and the tightropes of international diplomacy and trade have wobbled. It's also been a year in which big questions have been posed about tr truth, equality and justice. And it's been a time which has exposed cracks in our social infrastructure, but also reminding us of the power of our community. And the climate challenge so dramatically illustrated in the mega fires of Black Summer remains one of the defining issues of our time. 2020 has been a year of frantic reaction and deep philosophical reflection. And in this environment, remarkable writing flourishes. And tonight, Grattan Institute CEO, Daniel Wood, and renowned journalist, broadcaster, and my former colleague, Geraldine Duke, reveal Grattan's top six thought-provoking and relevant books and articles of 2020 recommendations for the Prime Minister's summer reading list. It includes some wonderful and important writing from deeply personal reflections on friendship, the past and truth, to powerful First Nations poetry, writing that examines so many things that lockdown revealed, magnified and exposed. Books have always been great allies of good leadership and this list is no exception. Of course, this is not just reading for the Prime Minister, but for all of us to be informed, moved and inspired. So Daniel and Geraldine will be joined by some exceptional authors tonight to dive deeper into the ideas behind their writing. We'll hear from Claire Rice, Marion Wilkinson, Alex Miller and Evelyn Araluen. And you'd also, if you'd like to ask some questions, you can do that in the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom panel. But now a very warm welcome to Danielle and Geraldine. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Kate. Um, and Grattan certainly values the ongoing connection with the State Library. And I'm so glad we've managed to keep it alive this year, even if we haven't had that opportunity to, to visit the beautiful uh, redeveloped building quite yet. Um, I, I would like to acknowledge that I'm joining the webinar this evening from Boomerang Country uh, and also to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to, to land, sea and community. Uh, I'm delighted to be co-hosting the event with Geraldine tonight. Uh, I, I do see Geraldine 
through the year at, at Grattan board meetings, but I, I do feel like I see her more often because she's there every Saturday morning in my kitchen on my radio, uh, sometimes during the week as well, if I'm lucky. Uh, and, and she's known for her intelligent questions and for bringing, you know, interesting, important issues to the, the front of public debate in Australia. Um, so thank you, Geraldine, for co-hosting. Um, thank you, everything you do for Grattan and, and for Australia as well. Um, so let's get into the books. Uh, it has been a big year for reading for, for many of us, uh, particularly with other social activities uh, dramatically curtailed here in Victoria. Um, Grattan staff read and discussed more than 100 books and we gradually whittled that down to get to the six that we think the Prime Minister should be tucking into his beach bag this summer. Uh, of course, it's not an easy exercise to get to six. Uh, it was ultimately part structured process, uh, part alchemy, part CEO, reign of terror. Uh, but the, the three criteria we set for ourselves were, um, first, they had to be something new, so something released either this year or in late 2019. Um, second, they had to have something worth saying. So something that makes them relevant to the Australian policy discussion or the Australian experience. And thirdly, and most importantly, they had to be a cracking good read. Uh, so as Kate said, hopefully that means they're not just gonna be thought provoking reading material for our prime minister, but for any Australian who's interested in public debate. And I know so many of you are. Um, so if you haven't already curated your summer reading list, you have come to the right place. Uh, we will be discussing um, all six of these fantastic reads this evening, uh, five books and one essay. Um, as Kate said, we have a number of authors online to join us. Um, we are going to be running a pretty tight chip, so we probably will not get to questions, but please do feel free to use that the Q&A function to, to make comments, um, to reflect on the works, um, to, to share anything you might like, and hopefully there can be a bit of a, a discussion going on there. Uh, so, Geraldine, uh, let's kick off with the shortest work on our list, uh, Claire Wright's How the Dark Gets In. Uh, it was published in the Mianjin Literary Journal earlier this year. Um, I read this one when I was in the midst of uh, the second lockdown in Melbourne. Um, we, we tossed up a few coronavirus essays. Um, most of them were some version of the um, coronavirus has highlighted that the US is a, a failed state type thesis, which I think is, is a really um, important angle on this. But certainly to me, um, Claire's essay felt, you know, much more immediate and directly relevant. And I think uh, she's really kind of nailed the emotional essence of mm. that Victorian experience mm. with the, the second lockdown, what she calls L2. Um, <laughs> that sort of that sense of unease, the, the, the small things taking on greater significance, um, you know, none of the, the kind of sourdough baking and cheery self-improvement that we saw in L1. Um, I'm interested actually, Geraldine, as a, as a Sydney cider, did you feel like it gave you um, some insights into what people in Victoria went through? Very much indeed, Danny. Uh, I, I thought it was quite strong and, um, you know, we can run but we can't hide and now in stage four of lockdown 2.0, we can't even run. But, you know, there was that sense. <laughs> and then I, I must say the, the sort of self-reflection, um, I thought she had has done better than I've seen elsewhere. She's tried to put words to the abstract questioning that we've been doing. You know, it's also felt so odd and uh, trying to pin down exactly how one feels and what been the gains and the losses. I, I would register quite a few more gains, I must say, uh, than Claire does. Um, 
but she really has, I just love the way she wonders whether, uh, out loud, whether it's basically said to us all, what's the point of the striving? Lockdown 2.0, a part of ourselves has thrown in the towel, surrendered to the inevitability that all of that striving, all of that reaching for the sky, all of that stretching our limbs and digging down our roots will have been for nothing. You know, it was a, it was devastating in a way to particularly, dare I say, as a Sydney sider, to transpose myself into those feelings of what, what's the point? Is there a point? So I actually thought she nailed that introspection very well indeed. Yeah, I think when you're kind of in the midst, it'll be interesting to hear from Claire whether she sort of uh, still feels the same way. And, of course, we're all asking ourselves the question of, you know, what changes coming out of, of mm. that particular experience. But certainly when you're in the, the middle of it, it was hard to, to see the end, as she sort of pointed out. Um, I also really loved about the essay the way she sort of wove in some of the, the deeper themes, you know, the question of how we treat the elderly, um, the vulnerable, including the frontline workers, the refugees, um, and that, that idea that when you're frozen in time, uh, you can't look away from those issues anymore. You sort of are forced to confront them head on, um, which I thought was a really um, important way to kind of weave in some of those broader topics. Well, see, you, that just shows you what a much better person you are than me, because I actually was just completely fascinated by all the introspection um, that without some sort of a marker, a beacon, a crypt, the grass will grow over our subterranean selves. And before long, we will have disappeared without a trace. I mean, that's fantastic. That's beautiful writing. And that sense of um, self-reverie. I actually thought she captured that incredibly well. Um, I feel like I've read quite a lot about, it's, isn't it funny? I feel like I've read quite a lot about people transposing and worrying about others. And sometimes I feel they're just going through the motions when really the real concern is us. <laughs> Where do we come out of? How do we come out of all this? I thought it was quite honest, I must say. Yeah, well, uh, that I think really affected me. And it's lovely to have that, you know, Claire's obviously a historian by trade, you know, that that kind of record of, of that point in time. Because, well, as you know, I think from a policy perspective, I think it was the, um, the, the right call. But, you know, it's, it clearly wasn't without no. human toll. And to, you know, have that documented, I think, is, is, is really a powerful thing. Um, well, I am delighted now to, to welcome Claire Wright. Um, Claire is well known to many of you as a, an award-winning historian, uh, author, broadcaster. She is currently the Principal Research Fellow and ARC Future Fellow at La Trobe University. She is the author of four history books, including The Fantastic, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka and You Daughters of Freedom. Uh, no pressure, Claire, but we are eagerly awaiting the, the third in that democracy trilogy. Uh, welcome um, and thank you so much for, for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a, a thrill to be here. Uh, I'd like to begin by actually acknowledging that I'm coming to you from Gadigal country in Sydney. Uh, so I have gotten out of Melbourne. Oh, and, in, and in fact, I took the train today from Canberra to Sydney. I've been in Canberra for the last two weeks researching the third part of that trilogy. So I do actually have a really different perspective on, on that essay, having um, not only gotten out of lockdown, but actually gotten out of Melbourne as well. So, oh, so tell me how, how are you feeling, Claire? <laughs> 
I, I'm, 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 well, firstly, I'm feeling overwhelmed to have, to hear both of you who I admire and respect so much speak about my work in such, in such high terms. It's like having like somebody read a book review out to you or something. It's kind of, um, it's quite extraordinary feeling. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit lost for words, which is an unusual feeling for me, but uh, it's been an extraordinary couple of weeks for me. Uh, you know, I left Melbourne, I got in uh, the taxi at my house wearing my mask and uh, got to the airport, had my mask on, did the whole plane thing in my mask, taxi to the airport in my mask, hotel in my mask. I arrived at the State Library, at the National Library of Australia the next morning in my mask. And it took me kind of a while to realise that nobody was wearing masks. People come up and shake your hand. Uh, I had a couple of hugs from people, not strangers, people I knew. But, you know, like this has been so completely foreign to Melbournians for so long. And, and it took me a while to get back into a sense of, of kind of trust of, of humanity again, um, to lose that wariness that we've all developed in Melbourne, a kind of skin that we have grown over ourselves that is somehow protective. And, you know, all of the, the walking that we did in Melbourne by the creeks and everything that, you know, we would avert our glance, turn our head. It was... Um, you know, just to realise that Canberra had never actually really gone into that space at all, what made me realise that uh, that Melbourne's experience um, of this in, in an Australian-wide sense was really quite unique. I mean, I went to a dinner that I, I was going to for the Australia Institute and there were, I don't know, 20 other people there. And it made me realize it was the first time in nine months I'd eaten with anybody who wasn't a member of my family. Wow. I um, had the same, I went to Sydney a couple of weeks ago and exactly the same sort of jarring experience. It's just, uh, you know, it was, it's just so, so foreign. Um, I, I am interested in your perspective, Claire, as a, as a historian um, on that point of, um, you know, how will, how will historians kind of look back on that period or, you know, what sort of sources do you think people will be dredging up in, in 50 or 100 years when they're writing about um, the lockdown experience? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. One of the things that I'm so fascinated by with this lockdown is that the cultural institutions and, and the collecting institutions like the State Library of Victoria really got onto this idea very quickly of needing to kind of create a time capsule. And the State Library, for example, has run a fantastic program where every month, every week, I think they they put out prompts like, what is in your COVID fridge? Uh, and you know, what what are the what are the lockdown activities that you've been doing? And people have just been able to write in. So it's kind of um, a quite deliberate attempt to create an archive of the of the pandemic experience, knowing that so many of these things are are very ephemeral. Um, our, our feelings are ephemeral, but actually. What we do know now, which is so different from the way clearly I felt in the middle of lockdown too, was that it did seem like it was going to be endless and you didn't actually ever know whether you were going to get out of your house again. And uh, so, you know, that sort of defied rational logic and yet that's how so many of us felt. And so I think the, the, the libraries have been really great about realising that 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 documenting that moment, particularly because we do live in an era now where 
we don't have letters. We we don't send letters to each other handwritten. We don't write diaries very much anymore. Not many of us do. So all of those forms of kind of communication that historians use to relate life 100 years ago, the daily granular detail of what people's lives are, largely we don't have those sources. So I think there's going to be a lot of material for future historians to, to draw on and look back. And, and it'll be interesting to see how quickly that process starts. Um, clearly, the rest of the world is still in the middle of this. So we're not mm. up to telling that story from a distance. And we don't even really know how our own story is going to play out yet. Well, that's fantastic. I didn't realise that about the State Library collection. So well done, uh, Kate, and to the, to the State Library. Um, Geraldine, do you have a, a question for Claire? Yes, uh, I'm, because as you know, Claire, the previous pandemics have produced remarkably little. Uh, and, it, you know, it's only... It, I've done several interviews trying to tease that out with specialists in previous pandemics, alarmingly little, and it's sort of subtly coming out. You know, I saw a very interesting remark, Edvard Munch, the artist who I think died eventually. He he wrote, I just saw the other day, incredibly movingly, about just this sort of ghost that was sitting on their shoulders of the of the Spanish flu. But I, I wonder whether um, we will care to even be curious once we're back to normal. I'm really fascinated by this question. What do you think? I, I think that there is, it depends on the extent of the trauma in a way. Uh, you know, the Spanish flu killed 50 million people worldwide. Yes. We're, we're, we are not nearly up to that yet. Uh, and, and people after very traumatic events want to move on. I mean, people weren't um, writing histories of, of World War I and Gallipoli on the back of it. You know, we, as we always hear, those soldiers who came back from war didn't want to talk about it, didn't talk to their families about it. It was unspoken. And we have the same phenomenon with Holocaust survivors. And, you know, they largely, the survivors didn't write their stories. Their children and their grandchildren did. And so I think to an extent, it, it depends on how traumatic this event is. Um, in Australia, I think, by and large, it has not been traumatic. I mean, people talk about it in those terms. Like I was joking with some people last night. There was a somebody was telling a story about having uh, gotten their son out of Melbourne just before the second lockdown started. And I was saying, you know, the way we, even the language that we use, you know, we got him out. It's like those those stories of Holocaust survivors, that of the families that they got them out of the Warsaw Ghetto just before the, the Germans rolled in and, you know, and the rest of the family went to Blinken. Now, clearly, there's there's no equivalence. We're not speaking in terms of equivalence. We lost our liberty for a few months. And most of us in Australia, on global terms, have not lost our lives. And I don't mean to downplay those people who have been personally affected and have lost loved ones. Um, obviously, there, there have been deaths. But, you know, in the midst of that pandemic, there was, you know, it was it was still a largely superficial toll that it, that it has taken on us as a nation. Hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I I'm going to sort of keep us on a strict time, Claire. But thank you so much um, for joining us um, for that fantastic essay and and for your insights. Well, thank you for selecting my essay. It's um it's a a, a great thrill to me. I I wrote that in a in a two hour flurry, um which you know my my, that Forgotten Rebels book took 10 years so it's a, it was a very different writing process so that, 
So the fact that uh, it's been acknowledged in this way is is really um, very surprising and, and quite thrilling to me. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Claire. Uh, Geraldine, Marion Wilkinson's Carbon Club. The Carbon Club, yes, indeed. Well, look, this is a rollicking yarn. That's what I want to say above all. Uh, it's an effort to chart Danny, the backstory of why it's been so hard to engender bold action within Australia about climate change. And it, it really charts the economic, the political and scientific wars that have dogged climate policy and that have dogged prime ministers going back to John Howard through to Kevin Rudd, to Julia Gillard and Malcolm Turnbull. And in a way, Marion um, really proves, I suppose, we know a lot of this, it's just that she does, it's a very well written, and as I said, it's, it's quite a yarn, that we're hoist on the horns of an exquisite dilemma, really. We have grown rich on the quarry, yet we are also a country that stands to lose big time from the effects of climate change. And I suppose the last bushfires in particular really focused, I think, a lot of people's minds in ways, and I, I still think there's profound shifts are occurring right now. What she does do is she shows that it's not just um, right-wing opposition that people might think um, it, it, it is the source of it all, but also the Greens, who are never sort of, as she says, really satisfied with what's proposed, and unions who are terrified about uh, job loss. There's people like Clive Palmer, and Pauline Hanson, all of whom form one way and the other uh, a carbon club. I think she's more talking about some of the, you know, by the use of that term, she's talking about the people who really actively got in there and made sure that they were throwing up all sorts of arguments that repeatedly wedged uh, various leaders from bold steps um, and <laughs> to, this, to this very day. So it's really, I think, um, to me, it's a lot of it, you, you know, it's that she assembles it in such a way that I think it's it's very clear cut and very arresting and that sense of, oh, oh, this is why we are where we are. I, I don't know whether that's how it affected you. Yeah, well, it absolutely did. I thought it was, um, you know, it's, it's such an interesting thing that you can do such a forensic history mm. and, it, you know, it is, it is forensic. Um, but as you say, at the same time, it is that sort of ripping yarn that you, you, you can't put down, uh, even though, you know, a lot of it was familiar to me. It was reminders or sort of new bits and pieces. But I thought, you know, it was just having it all together in one spot, you know, just it really struck me uh, how much we've essentially been chasing our own tail. So, mm. you know, the debates that we were having in the 90s around, you know, what's going to happen to those coal communities, uh, you know, what is it going to do to electricity bills? Um, can we just put all our money into technology and not have to change our behaviour at all? Um, the, the same debates that, that we're having now and, and we haven't found a way through. So I thought that was, um, you know, I thought that was particularly powerful. And also um, I'm sort of interested to, to put this to Marion in a minute, but it, it struck me almost as if the sort of the balance of opposition had, had shifted somewhat. So as you say, when she was talking about the Carbon Club initially, it was the sort of the vested interest businesses mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. using the climate sceptic scientists and some of the think tanks as, as cover, but, you know, sort of got the sense that the businesses were the ones pulling the strings. Um, now, um, you know, some of those coal businesses, including BHP, are saying we want climate policy. The BCA has shifted. Uh, a lot of businesses worried about climate risk and, and want action. Uh, and now it is more of those sort of, uh, I don't know, almost 
love to political love children of that of that era that have, that have come up and um, are now blocking further further movement. So it did seem to be a bit of a um, even though it was the same debates, a bit of a kind of shift in in where the blockages mm. are in in the system. Um, so that might be a good time to introduce. Uh, the author of this fantastic work, Marion Wilkinson. Um, Marion is a multi-award winning journalist. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with her career. It spans radio, television, print. Um, she has a huge CV, but she's uh, really developed an expertise in environmental issues. She was the environmental editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and her reporting on the rapid melting of the Arctic sea ice won a Walkley Award and the Australian Museum's Eureka Prize for Environmental Journalism. Uh, she's written several other books before Carbon Club, and in 2018, she was inducted into the Australian Media Hall of Fame. Uh, welcome, Marion, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Danny, and thanks, Geraldine. And can I say how delighted I am and surprised I was to be included in the Grattan Institute's list with these other wonderful writers. So thank you so much. Now, could I ask you, Marion, um, whether you have the response you've had from putting it down like this and from for being so, for, for just assembling it, as I said, in, in ways that were just so illuminating. Since you've done that, I'm intrigued as to the reaction you've had, because I mean, I remember I had you on a discussion um, on Saturday Extra with Martin Parkinson who was head of the Department of Environment and then Prime Minister and Cabinet, and Gillian Broadbent from the um, Clean Energy Finance Corporation. They were very interested. They were fat, really wanted to do it. That's what struck me when we asked them. It really wanted to, to do it instantly. And almost it was almost like you'd uh, freed something up in them. It was quite striking for me. You know, I get used to watching people like Martin Parkinson say, oh, no, no. So I just wonder what reactions you've had um, in, you know, broadly speaking, since it's come out. I think what you've said is so true, Geraldine, that the number of people, including people in business, but also in politics who've come up to me and sort of said, thank you for writing this book. One of the more recent being Matt Keane, the New South Wales Liberal Party Energy Minister, who said, you know, this is so important, this story got out here, and he's become a wonderful proselytiser for the well, book in the Liberal Party. Oh, right. but, um, but I think there was a sense of everyone knew the dam had to break, especially in the Liberal Party. And I think the analysis, I can't remember, Danny, whether it was you or Geraldine said before that, this the politics of this is really changing in the Liberal Party and not that I would take any credit for it at all but I think the book has certainly uh, captured that movement in the Liberal Party where there are a lot of people who want to break out of this terrible history that we are still trapped in. Unfortunately what does surprise me also is how powerful this history is because, you know, all this stuff we've seen about the gas-led recovery, all this stuff we've seen about Angus Taylor digging his heels in, you can see through the book where he's come from and the fact that Taylor is still caught in that and a group of people in the party, but particularly in the National Party and the Labor Party, are still trapped there too. 
Uh, do you want to go ahead, Danny? No, I can't hear you, Danny. You've just, you're mu mu muted, I think. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there you go. Off you go. The, the line of 2020. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there's so many sort of twists and, and turns in the, in the debate that you document, Mary, and I was wondering, when you pulled it all together, was there a particular moment or particular juncture um, that you look at as being really pivotal to, to where how we ended up where we are? Um, I guess if I would pick two moments, uh, one was a moment with John Howard back way back in 2005 when he was doing his white paper on energy and there's a whole collection of documents around uh, that I really tried to dig into with a group of senior Australian businessmen, and they were all men. Um, and uh, it was about where we were going on the technology of energy. And to a man, essentially, along with all the politicians and bureaucrats in the room, all of them basically dismissed renewable energy as anything really but a fringe technology. And it was so interesting to look back at that as I was writing in 2019 at how wrong that was called. And this is what I fear. So I, the book ends, as you know, in 2020. And with, with Morrison, uh, the current prime minister, and Taylor and the others within the cabinet, senior levels of the cabinet, once again, trying to go down a technology route without understanding fundamentally how the world was changing. I think the other moment for me that absolutely struck me and again resonated when I was writing in 2019 was the way in 2009 when Malcolm Turnbull tried to join with Kevin Rudd in this unity ticket, if you like, on let's get a price on carbon in Australia, let's, you know, change the way we do things in Australia. It's time, you know, it's the time to bite the bullet on this. And what happened was that there was a powerful push within the Liberal Party, if you like, supercharged from the United States, that at the time uh, the Republican Party was really on the rise on this. They were trying to bring down Obama's policies on it. And they absolutely fed into the debate here in a very strong way. Equally, I saw when Turnbull was elected finally as prime minister, he was trapped again in this fear of doing something about climate change, but wanting to. And again, some of the key figures in the Liberal Party were channeling the Trump administration, let's pull out of Paris, let's turn back the clock. And those moments when they came out up in the book, I'd write the, the section, you know, on 2009 or 2005, and then I'd write the section on 2018 and 2019, and you would be writing almost the same politics. That was fascinating to me. Mm. Do you think we'll be able to find a way forward, given that? Well, I guess uh, from a policy point of view, the thing that absolutely excites me at the moment is the way climate and energy policy is 
going through the biggest change Mm -hmm. I think I've ever seen in this country. It's driven clearly by our big trading partners forcing this on us. But as a result, as you rightly said before, you see the companies, you see the corporations, not only the BHPs having to move, but you see this huge move beginning in the financial sector in Australia. Mm. And the fact that we can today have two cabinet ministers uh, really threatening to haul our major financial institutions before the Senate because they won't uh, comply with a policy on climate change that is actually detrimental, sorry, detrimental to their shareholders' interests, I think, wow, that is an amazing place for a Conservative government to be in Australia today, and that's where we are. And I guess I keep saying it, but that's why I think that history that I've written in the Carbon Club is so important, because it's the only way you understand why we're still trapped in it today. I think that's right. You've absolutely got to understand history to stop repeating it. So it's, it was such a, a valuable contribution, Marion. Um, and thank you so much for, for, for joining us. I think we probably could have <laughs> kept on questioning you for another 10 minutes, but um, thanks, thanks for, for being here. Thank you, and thank you so much. And again, I really appreciate the honour of you including me in the list. Thank you. Uh, We will have a a total shift now um, and we're going to talk about this book, uh, Maps, by Alex Miller. Um, Many of you might think it's a work of fiction when you see Alex Miller's name there. Uh, It certainly comes with all the lyrical prose you would expect of an Alex Miller, but it is actually a non-fiction book. Uh, It's the story of uh, Miller's old friend, Max Blatt, a a German-Polish Jew, um, and leader of one of the Nazi resistance groups. Uh, he was captured, tortured by the Gestapo. He escaped um, first to China and then to Australia, where he, he lived in exile, in the words of Alex, uh, and, and became a close friend. Um, but really, it's, it's sort of a search for Alex, or Alex's search to understand Max, um, to, to piece together the story that he's only been given snippets of. And it's very interesting that Claire um, sort of reflected on that as a, a common experience. Um, you know, you really get a sense from the book of, of the way those type of personal histories come together. Um, you know, the you're doing the research, um, sometimes fruitless research. Uh, there's a few um, pretty important coincidences or discoveries along the way, uh, but but really that kind of need for the emotional connection to to get to the bottom of a person. Um, and it, it just felt like this book to me was such a success because um, that central character of Max. Uh, who really starts as a as a really um, elusive, somewhat solitary figure, comes alive through that process. And you know, I felt like I emerged from this with a a deeper understanding of you know both the beauty in him, um, but but the darkness as well that that came from his experiences during the Holocaust. So it, it's a really um, I think beautiful tribute from a friend, um, Geraldine. Well, I, mean, I, I would read Alex Miller writing on a paper bag, you know, that's not, no, I would. I'm just a huge fan of Alex and I have written, I've read uh, quite a bit of his work, not enough, it's one of my plans. Um, this is beautifully written. I grabbed it in the, in the middle of it. I just thought, I'm, you know, I'm not putting that down. I'm, and I, just, I was, I devoured it. Um, it it's, it's a memoir. It's a travel 
It's about travel writing. Uh, it's a narrative. And there's a lot about um, Alex himself. It's self-discovery, again. that I think I'm slightly surprised by that, to be honest, and how he how he wrote to reveal onion layers in himself as he was revealing the extraordinary onion layers, as it were, in this in this elusive man. Very sad, very sad man. Um, it reminded me, you know, very much of the Anna Funda, All That I Am um, a, a story, of the incredible true stories of the people who did in the 30s try to resist Hitler. You know, I think we, we get a story of... Um, the sort of social democrats failing and sort of departing the scene in a way that's very much what you know my history taught me and then the the rise of the fascists and the extraordinary sort of debacle that 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 all of germany went through all of germany went through but there were people who desperately tried and who utterly failed and max is one of them who um tried you know he was a member of the young communist league and the the, the torture you know, I sort of find it very, very, very difficult indeed to read about torture and to watch any of it. I find it profoundly upsetting. I mean, of course I do, but a lot of people don't seem to find it. And they they will go to it. I find it, in, as I get older, I find it worse and worse. But, um, you know, um, Max's decision, and or I think Alex is quoting about the that there seems to be a futility to existence after you have been through torture, I think he actually quotes um, uh, other people, uh, Fritz Vogel. Um, no, I think that's the wrong person. I'm just trying to find it. Because Alex himself realises that there's, there's something defeated in Max and he tries to work that out. I found that extremely moving and that there was a broken, a serious brokenness to Max. Um, I've, you don't... Even though you're alive, you're half alive. Uh, I think that was there was that line funny. that he repeated a few times that Max had said to him. You know, I realised my my torturer was my brother. Yes, um, you know that sort of commonness in humanity that we can we can do that to each other. You know, it's it's just heartbreaking. Yes, it, that was very. I thought that was very. And there was a lovely line I think from his uh, the friend Max was never in the camps. The camps were in Max. Yeah. Oh, Dear, oh dear, did that stay with me? Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, well, might be a good time to, to bring in the author. Um, Alex is the author of 12 no novels as well as a collection of essays and stories. Uh, he has been the twice winner of the Miles Franklin Literary Award uh, for his books The Ancestor Game and Journey to the Stone Country, uh, as well as winner of the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Uh, he has won so many other prizes, <laughs> I can't list them in the short time we have available. Uh, I'm sure if there was a National Treasure Prize, he would win that one too. Um, fantastic to have you with us, Alex. Hi, Alex. You are just on mute, Alex. <laughs> you hit the, um, the microphone one in the bottom left. Muted. Here we go. Oh, we have you. We have you. <laughs> I know we quite haven't. a few people would like to mute me from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that you guys um, included uh, this book. I had absolutely no inkling about that and I'm delighted, of course, and feel very honoured to be included with all these wonderful writers. 
Well, thank, um, thank you for writing it and, and thank you for, for being here. Um, Alex, you, you say in the book that you, you started the journey um, thinking that you could write a story about Max as a person and, and Max, your friend that you knew, um, rather than the Holocaust, but you, you later concluded that that was naive. Um, why was that the case? Yeah, I mean, um, what Geraldine just said, that quote, um, Max, when I said to Kitty Altman, in a way, Kitty Altman is the guiding spirit of this book. She's the person I was fortunate enough to find through the help of other people uh, um, who I took my doubts to, my initial doubts on how could I, an outsider, a non-Jewish person, um, how could I ever write such a book uh, without uh, writing about the Holocaust, which I dreaded the idea of that. Um, and I, my excuse, in a sense, to her was, you know, Max wasn't in the um, camps. And, and that's when that quote that Geraldine came up with was uh, Kitty said in her powerful voice that demanded your attention and your belief, uh, the camps were in Max. And um, there were a number of things she said like that, which um, at our first meeting, she really told me to get going and get on with it and stop worrying about the, all this nonsense. The Holocaust, I said, uh, really belongs to your people. She was, Kittier was a, um, an outstanding, extraordinary writer who's written a wonderful book called The Lives of Ordinary People. It's an extraordinary book, very powerful. A lot of it is to do with her um, argument for saving um, a German who worked for the Nazis but secretly worked for the Jewish people who were in the factory that he was the manager of. And she finally got him into that Yad Vashem's um, wall of righteous of the earth, into that select company of people who gave their lives uh, to save Jewish people, to save fellow humans. And um, Kitty sent me off to do the job. And she, uh, you don't know where you're going. I never do when I'm writing a book and the book will take me wherever it's going to take me. And this search, this travel, you said something about being a travel book too. It is, it's a traveling with Steph, my wife from Castle Main, where I'm speaking from at the moment, um, where we've had no COVID, <laughs> but we've had lockdown. And, um, oh, Max. Hey. <laughs> I said, oh, I can hear the tinge of something there. Yeah. Look, um, following the, the trail of the darkness that was in him and the silence, and the book is, is not in chapters, as you know, it's, it's in fragments, because fragments, any, any story that purports to be complete and total, and it's about the Holocaust, has to be essentially a lie. It may not be an intentional lie, but it's not true history. It can't be because too much was lost. And one of the things we're losing at the moment is an education about the Holocaust. We're losing our education about it. We see, I mean, there's a huge international industry of memorials of Hitler's Reich and things like um, the Nazi mega structures and shit like that that comes out endlessly on television and the books are just 
dozens and dozens of them coming out all the time. And really, there's not a lot on the Holocaust, not a, not a lot of new studies on the Holocaust that come out. It's disappearing behind all that stuff. To me, all that Hitler stuff and the Nazi stuff is very suspect. It's, it's this sensationalist thing. I mean, we all know as writers that if you hit the sensational button, you will get readers. Well, you talked about torture before. There is no torture in the book. We never talked about the details of torture. Mm -hmm. There was that occasion when he said to me, that is, if I wrote about the details of torture, that would be hitting the sensationalist button. That would be people reading for the thrill of it, for the uh, more than schadenfreude, the, the onlooker in the bad accident, the nastiness. Oh, God, I've got to have a look at it. I don't want to look at it. There's nothing of that in any of my writing at all, ever, because I'm conscious of it. I'm very conscious that sensationalist writing disturbs us in the wrong way. It doesn't take us down a good track. It takes us down the wrong track. And it's always there on offer, especially with a subject like this. And these discussions, films and books about the Nazis and about... Um, their uh, performance over the 12 years of their ter terrifying, when the world was given over to insanity and horror, um, those things are very suspect to me because in the end there's an air of celebration about them. It's unavoidable. And we're losing, the Holocaust goes off into the shadows. We're sort of still where we were years ago. You know, you know Max, that in the Jewish community, um, there's a well, certainly in Sydney, it's a very different community in Melbourne, much more Polish in Sydney, much more Hungarian, and now quite a lot of South African uh, Jewish people too. There's a, I'm just wondering whether part of the reason is this enormous um, ambivalence emerging among younger Jewish people as to whether how much of themselves they want and how much of their energies they want to give over to remembering. It's it's quite a um, there's a little tension inside the Jewish community itself about this. When we were in Israel and we finally found Max's relatives, uh, his niece, Liat Shoham, had, had two children, Oded and um, Kieran. And we all had meals together in the garden under a wonderful pecan tree. And they said to me, uh, we are a damaged people. And in, in a sense, this is what holds us together. This is what gives us our common sense of who we are, is mm. that we all experienced and have in our, in our psyches the, uh, the great horror, the, the Shoah, the Holocaust, the unprecedented and unique event, which arose, and this is what we tend to forget, it arose from the centre what we call and what we still call our European civilization. And we're mm -hmm. Europeans, all the people on this, except um, I can't remember her name, but um, it, you know, that, that uh, and it can happen again. We've moved over to the right and look at Poland, where they've done away with the distinction between law, sorry, the, the um, mm -hmm. uh, lawyers and politicians are now in bed together in Poland. They've got to be. Yeah, that that is. Look, that where is, are they going with that? It, it's a bit, well, nobody, nobody quite knows, of course. Um, but I, can I just ask you if I can just jump in because I'm just watching and I'm, yeah, I'm waiting for for, for uh, Danny to wield the whip. 
Sorry, oh, my, my four-year-old just came running in. <laughs> I dropped the whip for a moment. <laughs> the, do you know, Max, well, I'm calling you Max, Alex, um, it was intriguing to me. I didn't, uh, what I thought was very poignant was you describing the power of this relationship for you, this older man whom you felt so powerfully about, and yet you say, but you don't dwell upon, and I'm dare I ask, but you didn't see him for about two years before he died and you didn't go to his funeral. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, oh, that was hard to read and obviously hard to write, and you, I'm still not entirely sure why. You need to read the end of the book again, Geraldine, because at the end of the book, the answer to that emerges. And the answer is when Sh uh, Liat tells me that when Max first came to Israel, he visited Israel, he's, he told me, I'm going to Israel to see my nephew. I found a nephew in, in Israel and I'm going. And off he went. Well, that was back in the 60s. And his um, niece then told us uh, a couple of years ago now that... Um, when he came to Israel and he'd come for Yossi's bar mitzvah, ostensibly, he refused to enter the synagogue. And she, I hadn't realized the degree, the literal degree to which he had been disillusioned by all organizations, religious and political. And he had a horror of them all. And he said to me once, if you join in all innocence one of these organizations they will do something one day that will require you to perform in a way you don't wish to and that you're not proud of and mm -hmm. i have to look at modern politics as a perfect example of that including the labor party very much who don't seem to have any values anymore nobody resigns nobody says anything when something really ghastly comes up they just sit tight on their hands and that makes them one of them. You become one of them if you sit on your hands. You know that. And um, when Liat told me that, when he came to Israel, he refused to enter the synagogue. He came for Yossi's bar mitzvah. And on the day the bar mitzvah was, the, the event was happening in the synagogue. I've never been to a bar mitzvah in a synagogue. I don't know what happens. But he didn't go in. He refused to enter the, the uh, synagogue because he felt so strongly about it. Now that to me, and where you say I talk about that two year separation and the not going to his funeral, actually Fiona Harari suggested something to me and all the people who were involved in this book and there were a lot mm. of people, they all became part of the story, part of the journey, part of the travel, part of the finding out, the unlocking of the presence of this guy at his past. And um, she said, maybe, uh, maybe you just needed a break. He was such a powerful influence on you. Maybe you need to step out of the way for a minute. And in a sense, that was true. There was some truth in that. The bigger truth was my intuitive feeling that he would have despised me for going to funerals, and carrying mm -hmm. on like that, or accepting mm -hmm. things like, uh, I don't know, what, what do you call them? Queen's birthday honours would be a good example. I would have, he would turn in his grave if I took something like that. You know, what's that got to do with you, Alex? You've just deformed yourself. That sort of thing. I mean, he, his views were un, 
and uh, he was, I, I don't know, I mean, the book is about him. It's, it's my attempt to say something meaningful about him and our friendship and the influence it had on me and to try and nip that in the bud at the moment and un have a little statement about it is beyond me, sorry. So, no, it, I, I, look, I almost didn't raise it because I, I, I can see, <laughs> and you just proved, I can see how huge it is, it, which is which comes through, um, but I had to ask you anyway, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fine. I mean, his thinking was, um, if I just give in for a minute and go into the synagogue, something else will happen. Some other yeah. influence mm, will, yeah. will happen. Something will happen. I will feel once again that I've failed. I mean, let's face it, someone was talking about his failure. When you fail to that level, and the mm. German Workers' Party ceased mm. to exist in 1933, and the, the discussions and anxieties between one group and another, um, nothing happened on those days. Nothing happened when Hitler came into power. There mm. were no street demonstrations. Mm. In the, the labor movement, which was the most powerful in the world, ceased to exist. Yeah, it, it was a thoroughgoing. Yeah, well, look, I'm going to have to crack the whip. I'm sorry, Alex, sorry. again, we could just keep going. Um, you know, thank you thank so much you, for joining Alex. us. Thank you for that insightful book. And I think uh, it is a wonderful anecdote to that sort of sensationalism you're talking about, these very sort of human stories of the, the people that, that went through this. So um, thanks for telling the story. Thank you. So I switch off. Geraldine, um, on to yeah. wow. so now It's uh, actually, a, in a way, it's a, per a perfect segue uh, hearing Alex say that um, uh, there are people who just feel so, you know, they've just, they've just, just they've suffered so much of a, uh, a sense of um, distance from the people among whom they live, which is really the story of Firefront, First Nations Poetry and Power Today, edited by Alison Whittaker. And I think we have one of the, um, Evelyn Araluen, who is, is joining us as one of the poets. Look, this is a really very interesting book. Um, it's powerful. It's certainly not designed to make um, the broader population uh, feel comfortable. It's very much a um, the non-colonizer's language. Uh, it very much confronts, I suppose, those of us who are not Indigenous with uh, a sense that um, the people who want to write creatively about their lives are not any longer necessarily going to do it on, quotes, our terms. They're going to do it in their language in their language, in their style, not obeying the norms and the uh, accepted wisdom of the of the colonisers in terms of the way you construct a poem, um, the, the way it rhymes. The, I mean, certainly in poetry is fundamentally, I suppose, a form of language that most taps the deepest of emotions. But this is very strong um, and feisty. And uh, I suppose there's a lot of wit in, it, in its own way, a survival wit. And I found it a very powerful, particularly given that I'd had this book club this week about with Grace Carskins writing about people of the river, about the, the Aboriginal, the survival of the Aboriginal people on the Hawkesbury River alongside settlers. 
And she just insisted, and it comes through again and again in this ver some very powerful different writing from uh, this book, Firefront, that we can't any longer, if we want to see a real change in the discussion around Indigenous people, much like Marion Wilkinson was talking around the energy and climate change discussion, it won't be necessarily neat or nice or on our, quotes, terms. It'll be, a, it'll be a, a, um, a lingua franca that is quite challenging. And uh, I think this is, throughout this book, there's some wonderful, there's a marvellous piece by Kevin Gilbert, for instance, the, um, uh, the uh, poet. Uh, Despite what Dorothea has said about the sun-scorched land, you've never really loved her nor sought to make her grand. So, you know, this is just sort of going straight into this, I just adore, I love a sunbird country. It makes me feel immensely sentimental. I love it. But I must say the, the collected writing forces me to say, is this the only way it can be done? Might I have to develop a whole different respect for a different oeuvre and a different way of describing things that I do find really very, very challenging. So I, I don't know how you found it. I could. There are various other wonderful poems in here and writing, you know, it's almost like prose, poem, prose poetry. Um, I think it's really something. It, it's certainly something. Um, you know, it, it does really kind of um, force you to, to see the world through, through different eyes and, and different perspectives, um, which is, um, you know, I think at the heart of its power, and I, I was sort of, I was, I'm, I keep coming back to that word. I was hesitant to use it because um, the the very the sort of the introduction by Alison Whitaker right at the start, she says, you know, it's a cliche to call um, Indigenous poetry powerful. So, I, um, but you know, I think it's probably a cliche for a reason. But I, I did like she sort of threw down the gauntlet and said, you know, we need to talk about why it's powerful or, or think about why it's powerful. Um, you know, I think. It, it's undeniably the subject matter, as you've already said, you know, that it is, um, it's searing, it's sort of confronting to, to see the, the story told through that perspective. Um, but it, it is also that just the, the power of the language, the way it's harnessed, that diversity of form, the throwing things on its head, as you've said, um, the, the black humour, the, um, the piece that I really um, found um, incredibly special in there was the one that was the, the oral history um, that the author said, you know, you wouldn't normally write it down. It, it lives within him, but he gave special permission um, for it to be part of the collection, but um, suggests that um, you consider reading it out loud um, so that the, the story spirit can, can speak more clearly. And it, it was just a, a very um, special experience, I thought. Mm -hmm. um, it's beautifully structured. You know, I love the idea of the kind of the five essays to introduce each section that sort of made you feel like you had a guide sort of taking you through um, each one. Uh, it's just a, you know, something that everyone I think should read. Yeah, um, it, it is. Uh, um, it would be lovely to ask a question of uh, Evelyn actually when she. Well, let, let us go there because we are now falling behind time. Um, it's fantastic to have Evelyn Arulan um, join us. She's a poet. Uh, she's a researcher. She's co-editor of the um, Overland Literary Journal. Uh, her work has been awarded the Nakata Broe Prize for Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, and the Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. Uh, she was born and raised in Darug country, and she's descendant of the Bunjalung Nation. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Evelyn. Thank you for having me.
I think you're going to read one of your own poems. Aren't I am. Not? Yes, sorry, I can do I that. that's right. So <laughs> I was going. That's right. I was going to jump up first of all. Um, Evelyn's piece, uh, "Drop Bear Poetics," is Poetics. a fantastic contribution, and we were going to ask Evelyn to kick off by um, reading her piece before we we start shooting questions at her. Okay, too easy. Um, uh, yeah, so this is a piece called "Drop Bear Poetics" from the collection. Uh, this is also the kind of title piece of my upcoming book, Drop Bear with UQP. Um, and just for a little bit of context and background, this is a response to the broader context of Australian literature and the canon of Australian literary history, history and a lot of the tropes that um, I feel as an Aboriginal person have have been very claustrophobic for our representations of country. And this collection, this anthology really beautifully demonstrates um, that uh, we are very capable of articulating our relationships to land and place and don't need to operate within those restraints. So this is a poem that's in that, in that um, political and creative thrust. So it's called Drop Bear Poetics. Tidalic say, I'm such great thirst. I will drain the land and drag my big fat belly across the empty sea. Bunyips say, I'm going to gobble you up if you step waters where I sleep and with wet claws I will snatch your spine and ankles to fill them with stain and stench. What the mopokes say don't need saying if you've grown up under his eyes. Now here's the part you write black snake down for a dilly of national flair. True God, you don't know how wild I'm going to be to every fucking post-mod blinky bill trying to crack open my country, mining in metaphors that place you felt felt you somewhere in the Royal National. Wagon says use heart, but I am raging dreaming at the gloss green palm fronds of this gentry estate antique, all this pot planting in our sovereignty, a garden for you to swallow speak our blood. If you're talking that talk, you've got to scrape it from my schoolhouse walls, filled the gollywog ashtray snuggle pot kitsch into your pastoral deconstruct, fill four and twenty pies with artisan magpies, if you sever their heads, you can wear them to the doof. I say rage and dreaming for making liar the liarbird, for making my medic the power Bayami gave when Ribbon's mischief swallowed first life. Ochre dust, creation, breath, ancestor song. We aren't here to hear you poem. You do wrong, you get wrong. You get gobbled up. And I should also say that I am reading that poem today from the lands of the uh, Woiwurrung and Wurundjeri peoples of the unceded Kulin nations. Now, can I, could I come in and, I mean, it's just beautifully, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, I just think you use language. It's fantastic. Um, there's a very interesting question that Alison poses right in the introduction. Um, just warning us against cliches uh, and sort of the sense Firefront will challenge and subvert the English language. Uh, or does it come from creating space for other ways of thinking and rethinking? And then it asks this very interesting question. Does it nurture its Indigenous readers? Mm. I just thought it was a very interesting question, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, they're very powerful. They're immensely challenging to me. Uh, but I just wonder whether you think it does. 
is it is it immensely nurturing to to read this Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that it is such an interesting or rather striking question comes to the fact that we are as Aboriginal writers in a period that we could sort of call a renaissance of of Aboriginal publishing. You know, there's been a very conspicuous effort to get more Aboriginal voices in conventional publishing channels uh, by a number of of publications and organisers and writers um, and to foster those communities. Uh, but we are still, I think, um, not really considered very actively or agentially as readers and as the consumers of this kind of of this kind of literature, of Australian literature more broadly, or of our own uh, of our own writing. And we have really strong and really healthy and very engaged communities of Black writers as well as Black readers. And to have an anthology, you know, so much of our literary history actually does come from anthologies and writers such as the incredible uh, Annie Kerry Reed Gilbert, who passed last year, was a champion of these these uh, these these collections that kind of, you know, stand as these sorts of islands of, mm. of safety and security of um, of you know the brilliance of this work, these collective voices, because we are not culturally we don't really it's not appropriate for us to always speak in isolation or to speak singularly for the self um so you know me representing this book you know there's so many other writers involved in the work of this book and this anthology and so you know they all deserve recognition and celebration for that and an anthology allows us to I think um to take a more uh, a more cultural approach to what our dialogue looks like to what those interconnections and interweavings of our stories have always been historically but what they also represent now in this time in which we have more opportunities to publish we have more opportunities for our voices to be heard and so an anthology allows us to lift up uh, to lift up others as much as we ourselves speak which I think is amazing and this anthology does a really beautiful job of that. Mm, thank you. That's a very interesting answer. Can I um, jump in, Evelyn, which is also to pick up a question that, that the one of the writers in the, in the it was actually the final piece by um, Ali Cobby Eckerman poses. Um, well, it was an observation more than a question, but she says a, a lot of people come to a collection like this to listen only and not respond. Um, you know, I think there's very different different ways you can think about that. But um, you know, what response would you like from people reading the collection? Yeah, um, I feel like in a in a body of work that is so diverse, and Alison, you know, really deliberately worked to have a diversity of form, a diversity of perspectives, um, and identities and ages as well. Um, uh, you know, I want different things for all of for every single piece because I want the intimacy and the involvement and the detail and the respect that each work commands, not simply as this broader idea of Aboriginal literature that a lot of people feel obligated to participate in because it's 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 appropriate, it's politically relevant. Um, I want people to engage specifically with what each work demands and what each writer demands of it, um, not as this homogenous whole of Aboriginal writing, of Aboriginal literature, but as individuals who are shaped and you know, beautifully shaped and engaged with their culture and who could only ever be read in a context of them being Aboriginal, being First Nations, being custodians, traditional owners, being the caretakers of their culture since time immemorial, but who are also speaking 
for themselves and speaking in these interconnected spaces um, that, you know, that demand or should demand intimacy and detail and nuance. So, you know, from for example, like, you know, I have an essay in the collection um, that I hope is read uh, with this emphasis on the integrity and the vitality of our spirit of our, uh, that, that is so much of a part of the work, but there are also, you know, there's poems in there that are deliberately engaging with the history of the nation, the political demands of the, of the settler colonial invading nation state. There are poems that are about loving family. There are poems that are about beauty of kids. There's poems about a rodeo. Like there's all kinds of demands that this work places. And I think people have the opportunity and it's an opportunity that we should recognise came from decades of struggle and decades of work to get this writing, to get people access to the tools to have their writing published and to get, you know, to get more through these, these often quite traumatising and limiting structures in order to have their, their voices heard. This, this collection is a real gift. It's truly a gift. It's a gift to us as Aboriginal people because often, often we don't get to access these materials either ourselves um, but it's a gift to a very lucky contemporary readership of people who can now engage with Aboriginal voices by stepping into a bookshop, you know, and, and that I think that's a gift that shouldn't be taken lightly. It's a gift that should also command a kind of reciprocity and respect back to that literature by reading it intimately and with nuance and with engagement with these specific works and not just as a whole so I hope people spend time with it you know I hope they see it as a beautiful collective anthology but also appreciate the richness of each each person speaking for their own experiences. Thank you that's a beautiful answer and I think it, it is a gift it should be a gift for everyone this Christmas and it is one of those ones that um, I know I, I certainly will go back and, and dip into and can keep contemplating um, Evelyn, um, very briefly, when when's your collection coming out? Uh, in March 2021, so it was with the University of Queensland Press. They did ask me to remind people of that, so I'm due to <laughs> well, I, wasn't gonna let you go I don't think it's going to make people. a prime minister's list. It's, it's a little <laughs> bit, it's a little bit racy, but we'll see. Um, but I hope <laughs> like if you like the poem, you might like the book. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much thank for you, that, man. Evelyn. It was fantastic to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Evelyn was our, our final writer. So we've got not much time left, Geraldine. No. I knew that would happen, but, you yeah. know, you just you, you can't stop those conversations. They're just so brilliant. Um, so we will just rip through the last couple of books. Um, mm -hmm. First one, Good Economics for Hard Times. Uh, it is a book by last year's Nobel Prize winning economists, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duffalo. Um, they clearly didn't know they were going to get the Nobel Prize when they wrote the book because they kept talking about Eleanor Ostrom being the only female uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics. But I was absolutely delighted um, when Esther joined that club. Uh, it's a meaty read. Uh, it's very much aimed at non-economists, but it was still very enjoyable and informative as an economist to, to read it. And, you know, really the aim is to take um, the latest you know, cutting edge economic research, economic thinking, and make it approachable for a, for a, for a general audience. Uh, it's got a very practical bent. Um, so they're, they're really sort of trying to translate that research into, you know, what we can learn to try and improve living standards in, in developed and developing countries. Um, but what I loved as an economist is really just showcasing, you know, just the huge diversity of really important work going on in the profession. You know, it touches on everything from immigration policy to climate change, to political polarisation, 
and, and really shows the, the revolution of thinking that, that's gone on in each of those areas. But um, Geraldine, really interested in your perspective as a non-economist and, you know, what was it, did it surprise you? Were there things that were unexpected? Um, look, I, I suppose I thought that they did a very good job of um, of analysing something that I happen to be obsessed with, which is trying to, to get people to think about the useful role of government. And that I've, you know, I've, I've felt for many, many years that sort of the, one of the great turning points was the Reagan era and Thatcher era where, you know, government uh, is, does, it is the problem. You know, the fa fa famous um, uh, government can't solve it, government is the problem, the Reagan announcement. And really they basically say, look, I'm afraid, when are we going to grasp the idea, and they don't offer many hope, I must hope I might add, that it's only with the giant challenges of climate change, government has to work well. We have to have very good government to, to actually make a, a to, to meet the challenge. Um, they also, I thought what I liked was their, the way they focused on the, because their work is focusing on the poorest people. So it's very, it is a critique of the way we do economics, but it doesn't absolutely whack you over the head, I don't think, um, but it basically sort of, it tries to work out, again, how you really do draw the lives of the poorest up. Um, and it's not by actually dispensing money to the richest <laughs> and hope it triple, trickles down. I think they make, without, I mean, it could have even been more polemical, you might argue, it could have been shorter and more polemic polemical, arguably. I think Yanis Varoufakis says that in his review. But uh, I actually thought it was very humane. And, um, but, it, but it does, I suppose I do sort of feel that they don't go for simple answers uh, and don't fall into that economist. Mm. They're not self-important, if I can put it They're not, like they're not polemicists. They're, mm -hmm. they're very careful um, empiricists, yeah, and I are. think that, that comes out. But they do, they, they make it really approachable as well. Which they, is do. Really important. they do. Um, I'm they sorry, we're, we're going to have to move on to our last book. This We really are hanging through now. Yeah, but, okay, very quickly. Well, this <laughs> is my crab. Men at Work, Australia's parenthood, parenthood Trap, and I'm just quickly watching the time. So this is, you know, typically gorgeous Annabelle. Uh, this is actually a, um, uh, a, the essay, one of the quarterly essays. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a fantastically witty as a pin as she is, but meticulously researched, Danny, about how if we really want to change the working work family balance and the whole sort of structure of work we have to now focus on fathers we've had this enormous focus for the last 30 years on expectations of mothers and so on and it's been politically hugely uh, issue ridden shall we say it's actually our expectations of fathers that are changing and we have to make a much greater have a much greater focus and curiosity about how that might actually play out and just finally she would sort of say look there is absolutely no doubt that intelligent tinkering with national policies on parental leave has brought about profound changes, for instance, in Norway, both at home and at work. Women's participation in the workforce has increased. Um, and according to the 2019 State of the World's Fathers report, Norway is the second ranked country in the world by ratio of women's and men's undertaking of unpaid caring and volunteer work. And this has happened in a remarkably short time by focusing closely on fathers and expectations of fathers. There was quite a, I just think she's nailed it again. You know, she she's got a great capacity to focus down in a, almost like a gorgeous first part, which she works out 
I think this is a is a really good, and it won't threaten the forests. Um, I, I think people will really get something from it. I, I entirely agree, um, and I, I would say you know that that point you went to there about Norway. I think people um, sometimes forget. Um, just how much, you know, what seems like the natural way of things or the cultural norms that have built up, um, you know, they, they feel like they're um, unchangeable. But, you know, policy nudges start to shift behaviour and then the, the, those norms really do start to shift. And I think it was a really kind of powerful call to arms because men are, are not being served well. Um, they're not being able to parent in the way they want to from the existing system. Um, so I think it's a really important way into that conversation. Um, Geraldine, what a whirlwind. <laughs> I would love I like I've done a full program and a half. <laughs> <laughs> um, it would be remiss of me if I did not mention our wonks list. Um, so in addition to um, those fantastic uh, five books and one essay, we have seven works that we've chosen for the Prime Minister's advisors to read over mm -hmm. the summer. Um, I know that lots in our Groton community love the wonks list. They are um, the slightly nerdier reads. Uh, they, they showcase kind of new and interesting policy thinking. Um, so if that is your cup of tea, please go to that link um, that was put up in the Q&A uh, and it's sitting there alongside the, the main list on the website. Um, as we draw to a close, can I say again, a huge thank you to the State Library, uh, all of our fantastic authors who've stayed around for the conversation um, and to the ever, Excellent, Geraldine Duke. Um, my battery is about to run out. Oh, so no. Right, well, I really have to talk quickly. Um, thank you to all of uh, my fantastic Grattan staff uh, who spent the year uh, reading, discussing books uh, with a real gusto and passion, um, especially the Cat Clay who helped coordinate the list, um, Tom Crowley who coordinated the wonks list, uh, Paul Austin for his ever wise counsel, and to, to B Ring Rose who did an outstanding job, I think, pulling together tonight's event. Um, big logistical degree of difficulty. I was a bit nervous earlier today, but um, it just uh, all went so smoothly and it was lovely to be able to have the authors today. Um, if you like what Grattan does, if you want us to be around for the long haul, please do consider supporting us. It, it has been a big year for policy and I, I think we have played an important role in helping make health, economic and social policy in 2020. Uh, and hopefully adding sometimes a, a calmer, more evidence-based voice to the debate. Um, B is popping a link in the chat. Um, so any and all contributions, especially welcome. And I did want to say a big thank you to all our existing supporters. Um, you know, we are so grateful to have such public spirited individuals, um, philanthropic groups and corporates support our work. Uh, and I'm certainly hoping to keep building up that Grattan community in 2021. Uh, to all of you, thank you for staying online. Uh, have a wonderful relaxing Christmas break. I hope you have the opportunity to reunite with friends and family, uh, perhaps enjoy some of the works on tonight's list. Uh, we will look forward to seeing you refreshed and back for another year of policy conversations in 2021. Uh, thank you, good evening. <laughs> <laughs>